0: Easter sermon. These are some of my favorites. So uh, we're going to be not in the book of 1 Samuel today. We're taking a break, so we'll never make it through 1 Samuel. Uh, I actually thought, I was like, the next passage we have in 1 Samuel is David and Goliath. And for a while I thought, that could be an Easter sermon. I could turn that into Easter, right? But we'll save that for next week. So uh, we're actually going to be in John chapter 20, if you want to turn to John chapter 20. Uh, I was looking back this week over the Easter sermons uh, we've done over the last couple of years, and uh, this is our fourth one by my count that we've had this together uh, fourth Easter. So I was looking over the um, sort of my notes from the previous ones and usually on Easter morning pastors try to do one or two or both of these things. Um, there's always a compulsion as a pastor to try to give some evidence, to bolster a reason to believe in the resurrection, to point out some of the arguments or some of the credibility, the evidence that it actually took place and the difference it makes. Uh, the other thing pastors try to do is they work really hard to create a swell or a sense of worship. Um, So much of the year, so much of this beginning of the year builds up to this point, coming through Good Friday, the Lent season, building into this period of celebration of Easter. uh, It's always an opportunity pastors try to create the best worship. And so you'll see churches put their best foot forward, uh, their biggest productions, they put on their best jackets to come to preach on Easter mornings, (laughs) although they get poured upon this one. Uh, There's plenty of reasons we worship at Easter and plenty of reasons we get excited about doing it. It comes at a good time of the year, spring, the weather's starting to warm, even the rain this morning reminds us that things are blooming and summer's around the corner. Uh, Many people will say that Easter is their favorite holiday, and for sure it's one of mine, but I want to do something slightly different with the sermon this morning. Uh, If I were to title this sermon, I'd steal a phrase from a Wendell Berry poem I like. He ends one of them with this last line, this little recommendation, practice resurrection. It's the final line that he writes. Uh, What I want to do this morning is ask this question. What difference does celebrating Resurrection on Easter make for tomorrow morning, and the morning after that, and the rest of the week to come? After the worship in all these churches all over the world on Easter morning, after all the meals we celebrate, and the chocolate bunnies that Will is planning on eating, and the eggs that we pick up in yards probably inside today, Monday morning, when we commute to work and go to jobs and get back into the swing of life, what difference will Easter have made? Will another year of celebrating of resurrection actually make to the way that we lived? What does resurrection mean for the next day, the days to come? Actually, I actually think that's the right question as we come to Easter every year, because if we celebrate Easter well, if we do it well today, the worship is good, the production is good, the pastor's got his best sport coat on, and soon by tomorrow we forget and move on from the holiday, the event on the calendar, resurrection, And we haven't really understood the power of what today is all about, this reminder that comes every spring, Christ is risen. I like Barry's phrase, practice resurrection, because it suggests that what we celebrate today has to be something that we actually put into practice tomorrow. Practice it. Take it up. Live into this. Every day, pull it into the reality of that day, like practicing a scale, an instrument, a jump shot, a golf swing. Put it into living. Resurrection isn't just something we believe. It isn't just something we come to a service and ascribe to with words and worship, but it's something we live out, embracing it as a new reality, a new way of thinking about Monday morning and all of the days that come after it. Uh, A lot will be said all over churches today, all over the world, about the idea of belief, believing in the resurrection, believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, Those are actually the ancient words of some of the best Christian creeds. You might remember one of the creeds goes, I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. I believe he descended to the dead and on the third day he rose again. I believe it's true. Or Paul actually makes a similar point to that in 1 Corinthians 15, the famous resurrection passage. We actually did it um, last year. He said, or two years ago, he says, if Jesus wasn't really raised, then we believe in vain. Our belief is not meaningful. Uh, What do you believe about the resurrection is really one of the most important questions of Easter. But that's not just about what I mentally believe. It forces us into asking the deeper question, how does that belief get worked out in the reality of the way I actually live, the way the days after Easter play out? There was an interesting article this week in the LA Times, an opinion piece, and it was entitled this, Easter is the time to give consideration to the resurrection. So it's kind of asking the same question, what do you think about? When you think about, when you consider the resurrection, what do you believe? Uh, it opens this way, uh, it goes, starts off with a quote by an Irish philosopher, Peter Rowlands. Uh, let me just read kind of the beginning section of the article. As we near Easter, I think of the time Irish writer and uh, philosopher Peter Rowlands took up the question of whether he affirms or denies the resurrection of Christ. What do you believe about the resurrection? His answer, without equivocation or hesitation, I fully and completely admit that I deny the resurrection of Christ. This is something that anyone who knows me could tell you, and I'm not afraid to say it publicly, no matter what some people might think. For a person who writes about religious matters, that sounds a bit irreligious, doesn't it? But Rollins' explanation turns his words from the irreligious to the profound. I deny the resurrection of Christ every time I do not serve at the feet of the oppressed, each day that I turn my back on the poor, I deny the resurrection of Christ when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden and lend my support to the unjust and corruptness of the world. What Rollins reminds us is that even today, affirming or denying the resurrection of Christ is not simply a profession of words spoken in the context of a safe and secure worship environment. It continues to be a call to live. I like that last line a lot. Belief in the resurrection is a call to to live, to practice this, to pick it up. The message of resurrection is not just about what I say or what I sing on a Sunday morning, Easter morning, but it really has everything to do with what's on my mind and how I go about living the next day and the day after. If we were honest, we know that to be true about belief. The reality of what we actually believe is not what we say. (laughs) Plenty of us say things that we believe all the time, and all the evidence of our life doesn't prove out that it's actually a belief at all, but just something we've learned to say, we like to say. What we really believe tends to be the things that we live out, that we practice, that become patterns and habits in our life. We prove out our convictions of belief by reactions, the way we handle things, reacting, acting, by how we live. It's easy to sing the songs and say the words, I believe in the resurrection, especially on Sunday mornings like this Easter. But living out that hope of resurrection and the complexity of real life is an altogether different thing to practice. Three things I want to look at in John chapter 20. Uh, one of the most famous resurrection passages, a new place, a new identity, and a new purpose. This changed life, transformed, not just for the day of Easter, but for all of the days to come, the character we'll be looking at is Mary Magdalene. Uh, John chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir... Three things we said we want to look at. A new place, a new identity, a new purpose. This first one, the place of resurrection. Uh, A few days after Jesus' resurrection, it must have been hard to have fully comprehended what had happened in those days. How much more hard in these days leading up to it. This day of Good Friday we celebrate, the Saturday of darkness where nothing, the hope of resurrection has not been fully realized. Everything for the disciples must have seemed a bit of a blur. All that they had expected Jesus to accomplish before this Easter morning seemed lost. All of their expectations for him and the world that he was about to usher in crushed. No one, as even John points out, even having stood and looked in the tomb and seen it empty, even they still didn't understand the prophecy that Christ would be risen from the dead. None of them could piece together or understanding of what was happening. They had no framework for that kind of event any more than we probably would in the same situation. You can see over and over, all of the characters are convinced someone else has acted, someone has stolen the body, someone has moved it, someone has taken it away. Even now, as we imagine what it must have been like that Easter morning for Mary to have come to this realization, Christ is alive, how astonishing and dramatic that event must have been. Um, if you've ever been in an Easter production, an Easter cantata before, uh, a play at a church, uh, most of them follow a pretty similar outline. And the moment, the high point of all of those Easter productions, the one with the most drama, is always this point, early in the morning at dark, when the stone gets rolled away and Christ is there. Um, the way it always played out as ours, if you've been to them, I'm sure it's probably the same, is usually there's the difficult scenes of the crucifixion, and as it draws to an end, darkness across the whole stage. And about that point, maybe a voice from above over a mic will say, two days passed and on the third morning, all of a sudden you start to hear the music build, the soundtrack begins to swell. Uh, If your church was really tech savvy, then all of a sudden light would burst through the foam that was painted to look like rock and begin to cut a circle like a laser from behind was etching out the hole in the rock. All of a sudden the foam door slid to the side and always the scene was... The light pouring out in the audience, and there in the midst of it, the silhouette of Jesus standing. You know the scene well. It's a powerful moment, and almost always everyone clapped. That was the way we responded to it, rightfully so. Jesus was alive. Look at him in the light. Artists and songwriters and everyone else who takes up the task of depicting resurrection usually go to this scene. Jesus, light, standing in the hollowed-out, empty tomb. It's interesting because that's not the scene that John chooses to highlight pretty remarkable. We read into it that moment, a good moment, nothing wrong with it, anticipating what it must have been like when Jesus actually stood up, when the rock actually rolled away. But for John, it's not where the action is. In fact, it's not the scene that he chooses to describe at all. John does something interesting with far less of the dramatic details. But the expectation of coming and finding Jesus's body, preparing it, For the rest of the burial, Mary sets out, and when she gets there, with the exception of the two angels, which by the way, she doesn't seem to even maybe comprehend were angels, it doesn't seem to surprise her or shock her, there isn't anything particularly miraculous about what Mary finds or the encounter she has. What I mean by that, obviously, Jesus being resurrected is pretty miraculous, but there's no music, there's no bursts of light, there's no silhouette of Jesus as he steps out of the tomb. At first, Mary literally doesn't even recognize Jesus. It's so anti-dramatic, she thinks he's a gardener, not the risen savior of the universe. It's a little bit less dramatic than most of the ways we tend to describe it in our, in our productions. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, Living the Resurrection, writes this, and I think he captures it well, the way that John portrays this Easter morning scene. The resurrection was quiet business that took place in a quiet place, without publicity or spectators. There was, of course, much energy and emotion, tears and running and astonishment and bewilderment and joy but there was nothing to catch the attention of outsiders given our accustomed ways of surrounding the important events with attention-getting publicity given the importance of this event for the gospel that's a big surprise bright lights and amplification are not necessary accessories to spiritual formation is his conclusion it hit me this week that it's pretty remarkable i think peterson's right there's nothing flashy about the resurrection story. I mean, obviously, Jesus being alive and talking is a pretty big event, pretty miraculous and worth celebrating, but the context of the story, the setting that it plays out in, the place that it's happening, there's no theatrics, there's no fanfare, a woman in a garden who mistakes him is the setting the story plays out. All of the drama happens in the conversation, The realizations, the emotions, none of it's spectacle, but all of it ending up looking a lot like normal life. Going about chores, walking down a path, carrying along disappointments, expectations, crushed, misunderstanding, (laughs) looking at the evidence and coming to wrong conclusions. Mary, after all, is about a task. She's upset while she's doing it, crushed, demoralized. The scene plays out in a garden. Not one that anyone knew, don't think of it as Central Park, but some out-of-the-way place that they buried people. She isn't in the public eye, but going about a task that no one else seems interested in doing but her, apparently. The disciples, all back in their homes, not even participating. But this is not just where Jesus was buried. It's not happenstance that this event plays out there. It's exactly the place that he will choose to display for the first time the power of Easter, the event of his resurrection. I found that really remarkable this week. Jesus chooses this moment to show up and start talking to Mary. He doesn't go first to a crowd. He doesn't go to the temple or a church service and show himself in the silhouette of the light in the doorway. He isn't to the disciples who are gathered somewhere in intense and fervent prayer. But his resurrection shows up for the very first time to a woman carrying out her chores, crushed and demoralized in a garden alone, outside of anybody's attention. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, a decade or so ago. They made a new Superman movie, uh, The Return of Superman. Maybe just me and Trent have probably seen it, let's be honest. Uh, The plot opens with Superman having left Earth, so he's gone for a while, and everyone on Earth has to come to terms with him no longer being there to rescue them and save them. But he shows back up in the story in a pretty dramatic way. A commercial plane full of passengers is careening towards the Earth, its engines burned out, a wing ripped off. It's about to crash. It helps that Lois Lane is on the plane, so he's particularly interested in this event. But he comes rushing back down into Earth, and he literally, just before the plane, comes crashing into the baseball field, a professional game full of fans watching. He catches the plane by the nose, puts his whole force against it to slow it down, and lays it down gently in center field as all of the crowds and the people around him begin to cheer and shout, Superman is back. The whole spectacle, the fanfare of it. We like stories like that, and we like to imagine resurrection like that. Jesus coming down, all of us worshiping and cheering, excited, drama, events, miracles, playing out with him there. But there's absolutely none of that in this story of resurrection on Easter morning. Instead, Jesus shows up to an unexpected woman. He doesn't jump out and say, surprise, look, here I am. You thought I was dead. He walks up to her and he says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Here's what I want you to see, the real hope of resurrection, what this Easter means celebrating it, the real experience of Easter, not the one that oftentimes we pull ourselves into and enjoy, rightfully so, but the real heart of what is happening in this story on that morning, the event. It's not just about swelling choruses and dramatic productions. The real event of resurrection, Easter, is nestled down in the context of the most normal, out-of-the-way life possible an experience lived out in days and places and chores that most of us go about carrying, weeding gardens, doing chores, traveling to work, tears and disappointments, an approaching stranger, simple questions, a casual conversation. I don't know if that hits you, but the greatest moment in all of human history, for us as Christians, we believe adamantly for that to be so, the moment that changed more about this world than any other moment in history the event that literally billions of Christians today and for centuries before have celebrated. started with a half-aware conversation in some set-aside garden tomb with a woman that nobody decided to accompany that morning about her business. It's not enough to celebrate Easter here in a service like this, the swell of it, the feeling of it, the expectation, it's Easter morning, put your tie on, Roger, and come to church. Jesus and Mary didn't treat Easter that way. Easter came first to a garden. Can't help but wonder what difference does that make when I'm sitting around in my own backyard. Resurrection came first during chores, not worship. What difference does that make to the way that I fold laundry, take out the trash, go about my business? Easter first came, resurrection to a woman when she was alone. What difference does that make in times when I feel alone? A new place, our first point. The place we had expected, or we would have written, the hope of resurrection bursting in. But here it is, the place like so much of the places we live. The second one, a new identity. Um, I also don't think it's coincidence that Mary Magdalene is the center of John's Easter story. I don't know. I'd never noticed this before until this week when I was reading the passage. It's interesting. Um, Peter, the Peter, the lead of the apostles, right? The one that we would expect if Jesus is going to come down to and give the message to disseminate down the hierarchical structure. It would have come to the one at the top of the system, Peter, or the one whom Jesus loved, which is probably referring to John, who's writing, which seems like a pretty good title as well as later, the one that Jesus loved. These two are right in the middle of the resurrection story. They show up. They're right here. They come to the tomb that morning, just like Mary. They rush to it, running to try to be the first there. They look inside, not believing that the body has been gone. And sure enough, they find that there's nothing inside. Jesus' body isn't there. What's really remarkable, though, is they look in and they don't see angels. Nobody speaks to them. They don't find Jesus and they go back. They go back to their homes, still wondering, as John says, not understanding that Jesus must be raised. I'd never noticed that before. Here they are in the same place on Easter morning and the pieces don't fall for them. I don't know how else to read this other than the fact that Jesus must have made the intentional decision to reveal himself to Mary. I could not but wonder if he was maybe hiding in the bushes <laughs> waiting for for Peter and John to leave so he could get on about his business with Mary. Probably me reading a little too much into that passage. But nonetheless, he lets them leave and go back home and waits until Mary is here alone, weeping outside of the tomb, to step out and start his conversation and begin to speak. He could have shown up to the disciples. He could have stepped out to meet Peter. He could have walked out, embraced John. He could have been sitting on the bench when both of them looked in. Began a conversation with them, but he waits for Mary. We know quite a bit about this Mary, although it's a little bit confusing when you read the New Testament. There's so many characters named Mary that can get a little confused. But this one we do know some about. Mary Magdalene is first mentioned in Luke's Gospel. We find her with this reference. Now, after this, Jesus made his way through the towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. With him went the twelve, as well as a certain woman who had been cured of evil spirits and ailments. Mary, surnamed Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Apparently, we learn that she had become a disciple of Jesus because of some sort of healing event, though it's not particularly recorded. Some event in which spirits had been cleansed out of her, these seven spirits, ailments. Uh, There's no indication as unfortunately sometime around the Middle Ages, this Mary, Mary Magdalene gets associated with prostitution, but there's no particular story that leads to that evidence. It's kind of just become a tradition, though I think it's probably wrong. Uh, We don't really know what those possessions meant, those seven unclean spirits, but it must have been some sort of a physical breakdown as so many of the pictures of those spiritual oppressions were in the New Testament. A kind of marginalized life not functioning the way that expectations would have been set. These spirits are seen in her life, and even kind of described here in Luke, as an affliction more than they are a crime or an indictment on her. She's been suffering under the oppression of these seven spirits until finally Jesus comes along, heals her, and she becomes one of the most faithful disciples of Jesus. Mary was a troubled person, afflicted, suffering probably with plenty of reputations and history, baggage that followed her. But Jesus had rescued her and called her. It's somewhat surprising that Mary, with her troubled, afflicted, possibly even mentally unstable past, would be the one to first bear witness to the resurrection by his choice of Jesus Christ. Um, Of course, you've probably heard this point pointed to before, used as one of those sort of examples of the Bible's honesty. Um, If they're willing to put the evidence, the first message of Jesus's resurrection in this woman's mouth, then surely it must have been true, because who would have picked this person to have been the center point of the story? Uh, William Lane Craig, who's a a famous apologist, says this. He says, the discovery of the tomb by a woman is highly highly uh, probable in the ancient world. Given the low status of women in Jewish society and their lack of qualification to serve even as legal witnesses, the most plausible explanation... Why women and not male disciples were made to discover the empty tomb and Jesus risen is that women were in fact the ones who actually made the discovery in the first place. No one would have sort of picked Mary, is the point. No one writing a history or making up an event would have put Mary at the very center of the event. Evidence, arguments like that, is pretty interesting, but I want you to see the bigger point of what I think is going on here. It's not just proof wow, look, a woman had the testimony, it's not just coincidence. This is exactly the one who Jesus himself chooses to reveal his resurrection to first and to give the message to go and tell what she has seen. This is the person given the privilege of the first moment, the first realization, the first worship of all of the Easter's that have come year after year celebrating since. I think that's really important. The resurrection is not some show that Jesus is putting on. He's not showing off look at who I am, raised, a new body, resurrection. He isn't taking a victory lap so that everyone can see and clap and cheer. Jesus doesn't show up at Pilate's door and knock and say, guess what? (laughs) He doesn't head to the temple and taunt the priests who just a few days ago thought they had beaten him. Instead, he looks for Mary. I know that seems simple, but I think that is a massively profound point of Easter. The resurrection is deeply personal, life-giving, a moment, not just of Jesus coming to life, but Jesus pouring life, speaking life. Jesus is made alive, and the first thing he does is start speaking to an individual, to a person with history, relationship, brokenness, and baggage. This is the thing he's about in resurrection. The crowds not proving his point, not showing off, but life. Notice it. She doesn't even, when she sees Jesus approaching, recognize who he is. She doesn't jump up and say, Jesus, you're alive. I see you coming. Through all of her crying, all of this devastating disappointment, I sort of imagine in my own mind, maybe the sun, Easter morning rising sun behind him, keeping her from maybe fully seeing who he was. She doesn't recognize him. And the words are so profound. Jesus simply says, Mary. Period. Period. The whole sentence, he speaks her name. That may not seem like much, but for John, who's telling this story, it's at the very center of what's happening. The first most powerful words of resurrection, the first statement that Jesus will make, the first two being questions, but this, his first sentence with a resurrected voice, Mary. The realization of resurrection comes when Jesus speaks a name, a relationship, personalized. It's the first thing on Jesus' agenda after defeating death, speaking the name, Mary. Jesus' resurrection isn't too big or too important to rush past this moment. He's not on to bigger things, bigger acclaim, bigger drama. His resurrection starts with the name of this woman, all of her baggage, and all of her disappointments pulled into the reality of life. I really struggled to find the right words because as I read this, it became so important to me this week. Sometimes you feel the Spirit do something inside of you at these points, and trying to find words to help communicate to others is the hardest part, but this is the best way I came up with to put it. Jesus' resurrection isn't just a hope for life. We don't just on Easter morning celebrate a hope to come, a hope of a resurrection someday. Jesus' resurrection is an embracing of a new life, a new identity, a name spoken by the resurrected Lord, Mary. Mary. How incredible it must have been for her to hear her own name, the sound of Jesus' resurrection voice on that morning. When we talk about the hope of resurrection, that's not some abstract thought. It's not something we hope for later, like we might hope for a date in the future. Easter is the realization that God, who calls your name, who speaks your name personally as his first agenda of Easter, pours into it this resurrection new life, God himself calling you. Easter takes all of the complexity, all of the difficulty, the baggage of life and disappointed expectations and draws them together with the single word of the resurrected Lord speaking a name. Chase, Dwayne, Ryan, Dan, Justice. With it, we're suddenly caught up into something bigger, personally involved, pulled into it by our name not drawn in by a sign-up sheet or a request for participation, but pulled in by Jesus calling out to us as individuals. New life, spoken into us, a new identity, the awareness of the resurrected Lord on Easter morning, calling out to us. The first act that John records of Easter morning is Mary's name being spoken. Mary does what most of us would do. She clings to him. She rushes over to him and embraces him with a kind of grip that leads Jesus to believe she's not letting go anytime soon. <laughs> but Jesus says something remarkable. At first, it seems a little hard. Don't cling to me. Uh, I haven't ascended yet. Um, seems to be a way of saying, you're not going to lose me. I'm not going anywhere. He's saying, you don't have to cling. I'm here. If death couldn't hold me down, if death couldn't keep me from you, if I'm here now, I'm here with you forever, Mary. There's no desperation, no fear of losing me again. Andrew Murray, an old Christian writer, said this, A dead Christ I must do everything for, but a living Christ does everything for me. Easter's the first and foremost about receiving, about hearing your name being spoken, of clinging to Christ out of desperation and hearing him say, I'm not going anywhere. I can't be lost. I'm alive. Death itself can't separate us. Brennan Manning, another one of my favorite authors, says, For me, the most radical demand of Christian faith lies in summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Jesus Christ. Like Mary, simply to say, this is real. This is true. The new me, the new identity, an unshakable relationship. We don't have to cling out of desperation. We have him for all eternity. But this new identity isn't enough. Mary's given a commission, a purpose. Uh, The moment I say the word commission, everyone thinks the Great Commission, Acts. It's the place we imagine Jesus handing out his big job description for all of us as Christians. This is the business we're to be about. But it's interesting, Mary gets, in my opinion, the very first commission. The very first one to be given a task by this resurrection, this new life of Jesus. Go tell my brothers, my disciples, everything that you've seen. Go live into this. Get up. Don't cling. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. You can rest in it. Wipe away the tears, it's time to celebrate, go and tell everyone exactly what you've experienced here this morning. Every bit of the deflated disappointments all of a sudden caught up in this purpose, this passion of expectation, the realization that not only is Christ back, but he's not going anywhere. Good news. News that not only changed that day, but for Mary, for those disciples, quite frankly, for the world that's been celebrating it over 2,000 years, would change every day, and every year to come simple start this conversation with Mary. N.T. Wright, who's written some of the best works on resurrection, if you read his book on resurrection, says this, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that new life, like fresh grass growing through the concrete of corruption and decay in the old world. One day, God will do for the whole world what he has just done at Easter for Jesus. The point is, we're in on it, pulled into it. This new world, this new way of living, this new hope created in resurrection. All of a sudden, Mary finds herself pushed into it. Not aware, but all of a sudden, right at the center of everything that's going on in resurrection. And I might point out, none of it's because she all of a sudden did something or came to some conclusion or showed a certain amount of faithfulness that no one else showed. Resurrection is just received. she's half aware of what's going on for most of the story, but nonetheless, here she is in the middle of it because Christ has chosen her, pulled her into the middle of the story. Let me wrap up with this thought. In that moment, I'm not sure Mary even fully understood what had just happened or the significance of the place that she would find herself in in this story. I mean, could she imagine that morning, this conversation, could she have possibly imagined that 2,000 years later, here we would be talking about her reading her story an out-of-the-way place in a garden her the one with seven demons cast out wandering around following jesus just wanting to be a part of it and here we are talking about her story learning from it embracing it as our own she couldn't have possibly imagined it marginalized mentally tormented that she would become for us a centerpiece of christ's work of resurrection or consider this Mary, we said before, wasn't there by happenstance. We pointed out she was chosen. Uh, Christian writers for a long time have drawn some parallels between Mary, this Easter Mary, in the garden, as well as all the way back in Genesis, Eve and her garden of creation. A first creation, and now here with this Mary, another woman, in a second garden, a new creation, a resurrection creation. Eve had also shared what she found. You might remember it being death, passing it on to her husband. She handed it to him, but Mary is given a new commission, a new calling. Go share this message, good news, life. Eve hides from God. Mary clings to him. Angels block Adam and Eve from life in the garden, expelling them, but these angels announce to Mary awe and worship and hope and a new relationship. Christ's resurrection is a kind of reversal, a setting right of everything that had gone so badly, a hope that this new life, this new resurrection begins to restore so much of what is so difficult and so wrong about our own hearts in this world around us. But the thing I want you to see is that Mary couldn't have possibly understood all of those implications in that moment. She was having a hard enough time recognizing him, let alone understanding the central place, this unbelievable gift that she had been pulled into the center of. All of the fulfilled prophecies over thousands of years of Israel's history all of the built-up themes piling up as Scripture moves and leans towards this point. She couldn't have possibly understood the gift that she was receiving by being the center point, the one first given the message after so many have been anticipated for so long, simply being called into this moment. The truth is, most of us miss this reality of resurrection ourselves. I'm not sure we fully yet understand what we've received when we come on an Easter morning and celebrate being participants in resurrection. How could we even more than Mary? But we look back on it now and recognize what an incredible place she had been put in. I can't help but wonder if one day in eternity we'll look back on Easter Sundays like this and realize, like we do with Mary, what an incredible place we have been called into, our name spoken, participants, resurrection. One sermon can't fully pull you into that. I hope it starts. I hope it makes you want to be at the center of that story. This resurrection, though, has to be practiced, picked up, lived into, leaned into, believed, every day becoming a reality, taking it up as your story, Mary's becoming your own. Here it is in one line if I had to summarize what I hope this particular Easter could become for us. That question, do I believe in the resurrection? It's not just one of facts and evidence and proof, yes, I believe, even though other people don't. I hope this Easter, resurrection becomes a personal event, a place, like all of the places we live and work and do life, all of a sudden filled up with the presence of Jesus, alive, a new identity. This Easter, hearing your name spoken as an individual, pulled into the center of everything that Christ is doing in this new resurrected reality, and handed a new purpose. New way of living, a new passion, a new calling. This reversal of all things that had fallen apart now, with the news that you carry of resurrection. Your name called in your own mouth, bringing hope and restoration to all things new. I want to end with this. Um, it's a quote from. It's a little bit of a longer one from Frederick Beikner, another author. Um, he draws a parallel here between. You might remember this story. One of my favorites. Um, instead of going. 80 minutes. I decided to only do one passage of scripture. But one of my favorite Easter stories is the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, you remember, who once again Jesus shows up to and begins discussing in their disappointment. And they likewise don't recognize Jesus in his resurrection. Uh, Bigner draws a comparison between these two stories. I think it's a fitting way for us to conclude. So let me read this as a conclusion. The Sundays after Easter are precious because in their comparatively subdued, low-key way, They seem closer to the reality of the resurrection, as you and I are apt to experience it. These everyday Sundays, without all the flowers and music and exaltation, are like the kind of days that Luke describes in his account of the two disciples on their walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, some seven miles away. They had heard the woman's report about finding the tomb of Jesus empty that morning, but as Luke writes, it seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They did not believe the woman because they found that the woman had said was unbelievable. And then, as they trudged along with the evening approaching, Jesus himself, risen from the dead and alive again, joined them on their way. Only they didn't know it was Jesus because, again, as Luke puts it, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I think those eyes are the most haunting part of the whole haunting story because they remind me so much of my own eyes because i suspect that they may remind you also of yours how extraordinary to have eyes like that eyes that look out at the world we live in but more often than not see everything except oh, let me start that again more often than not see everything except the things that matter most what kept them from recognizing him of course was that they thought he was dead and gone and when he asked them what they had been talking about that is, what they had told him in words as full with meaning as any in the New Testament. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, they said. But by their own hope, they had now come to realize he was dead and they believed that there was no more of him. They had gone to the tomb to see if he was alive, as some believed, but had found no trace of him. They were so lost in their sad and tangled thoughts that they did not recognize him any more than you and I would probably recognize him as we walked through the world. Because like theirs, our eyes are too accustomed to the darkness and our faith not strong enough to believe in the reality of light, even if it were to blaze upon us this picture of resurrection light. I'll end with this. We need practice. It's easy on a Sunday morning to say, your name is being spoken, a resurrection you're pulled into the center of. But like so many of these characters, the first time they see this resurrection, they can't even recognize it. Their eyes, their disbelief, make living into the reality almost impossible. We need practice. Picking it up, living into it, straining, looking, focusing our eyes, wiping away tears, trying to see this resurrected Jesus at work around us. We need resurrection far beyond days of just Easter. You celebrate it here and move on with the rest of the year. There's no possibility of you fully understanding the implications of what you've been pulled on. Every day has to become a resurrection day. We need to hear the in Christ speaking our name, straining to hear it, listening for evidence around us, even when the world tells us that nobody in particular is interested in saying our name. Nonetheless, we believe Christ is speaking it, pouring into us new identity and a new hope, new purpose. Last thought, Easter is really not about today. It's about learning to see what Christ is doing, this hope of resurrection, and all of the gardens and chores in everyday life happening tomorrow, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and all of the ordinary Sundays to come. We don't move on from resurrection, but here it is, pulled into the center of the story, a new reality, Easter. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll worship. I've got, I think, a little bit longer worship today, so we can celebrate worship, uh, Easter at the end. But uh, that'll be my simple prayer that as we worship this morning, you might just hear this resurrected Christ speak your name in worship. Because if you hear that name, Mary, spoken to you, all of a sudden it begins to transform this whole reality of what it means to live in a resurrected Easter world. Let's close in prayer.